John chapter 19 today. You got your Bibles? Or your cool electronic gizmos. Uh, John chapter 19. Today is week three in a five-week series of the final days of Jesus. So we looked at the early life, the teaching, the miracles, and now this is about the final days. Um, As we've gone through this look at Jesus, my focus here has always been through this series you know, Jesus came to reconcile man to God. That was the goal. That was the ultimate goal of him coming. Uh, we wrecked, we, mankind, wrecked this relationship with God. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, was the perfect sacrifice, and today is the cross. Today is the turning point in all of human history for that relationship with God and man. Um, and one of the things that struck me as I was going through uh, I read the New Testament through periodically just to, because sometimes you forget things that are obvious uh, that you can kind of only see just by familiarity. So I read it through a couple months ago, and the thing that I was struck with was how unexpected Jesus was, both from his presence and his practice um, in his preaching, and we're getting on a alliterative, alliterative run here. Um, but he just he did things that people weren't expecting. Uh, the Jewish nation expected a Messiah to come and lead them out of the control of the Roman Empire, right? That's what they wanted, and that's not what they got. You know, God showed up, and he wasn't what they wanted. And it got me to thinking, throughout the life of Jesus, all these things that he would say where God showed up, and it just wasn't what somebody wanted. And so I started looking at my own life and how many times that I've prayed and asked for something and said, God, I want you to give me this. And then God shows up, and it really wasn't what I wanted. It was something completely and totally unexpected. So today is an unexpected God. Um, Because if I had to sit down in my logic and my thought and plan out how does God redeem all of mankind, right? becoming flesh and then suffering like nobody else ever has is not part of that, right? That is unexpected to me. Um, So the key thought today is a question. It's kind of more open-ended because we have all heard the story of the cross. This is not a new story, right? So the key key thought is what happens when God shows up but he's not what you wanted Uh, because we see that a lot today in today's lesson. So... So before I jump into the lesson, one quick thing. Amy Velosen taught last week. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. If you missed that, that episode of the podcast, that's what they're called. It sounds strange, doesn't it? Episode of Sunday School. Uh, But that episode of the podcast is is online. And in the very beginning, she makes reference to a list of things that you need to know if you ever work with me. She actually wrote out a list. Um, It's real. It's a literal, real list. So if you're interested in that, it's a great read. My wife thought it was fantastic. you can see Amy, and she can get that to you. So we're in John 19. I didn't want to forget that this morning because that was critical. Verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. So we jump right into the middle of the story, right? So who is Pilate? Somebody help me out. The ruler of what? The ruler of the Romans. Good guess. As a teacher, you always try to encourage a wrong answer, but that's okay. <clears throat> he was a what? The governor, yes. He was the governor, the regional, control, the regional controller. That's a good way to put it. Uh, Caesar was the emperor, right? He is the ruler. He is in charge of everybody. He is Pilate's boss. 
there may have been a step in between Pilate and Caesar, but he's the big dog. So Pilate's the local regional governor. Took Jesus and scourged him. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head, and they put on him a purple or a royal color robe. <clears throat> and I, I was thinking through this, because whenever you look at the life of Jesus, you always want to look back to Adam in the garden, because there's just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of parallels. So where did thorns come from? Sin, right? And where do clothes come from? Sin. Yeah, if, if Adam and Eve hadn't jacked it up in the garden, we'd all be buck naked in here today. And you're like, praise God for sin, right? No, I don't know, maybe not. That's wrong, isn't it? That's, you can, your theology can devolve very quickly if you go down this path, right? Yeah. Wow, that was awful. Edit that out of the podcast. Okay. There we go. So one of the things that I want you to see, though, is that Jesus didn't just suffer. He suffered in a very specific way that is directly related to mankind's sin. Okay? So we created the mechanism whereby he was mocked and beaten. Does that make sense? So we're in this. We're in this. So verse 3, Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now that said, and if, if you write in your Bible or something, you can circle that, and it's the imp- in the imperfect tense, which means it's over and over and over and over again. And there's several of those in this story. In the English, you read it and you go, oh, they said it one time. No, 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 this would have been constantly throughout this process. Hail, King of the Jews, and they're mocking him here. And they struck him, again, this is in the imperfect tense as well, with their hands. Now, <clears throat> most of you know that I like MMA, mixed martial arts. Albert, can you help me out? That was brave, because we just read, struck him with their hands, and he just jumps up, right? It's awesome. You're my friend, right? Sure. Okay. Right now, right? <laughs> the first time Albert ever volunteered for something, I said, uh, you're my friend, right, Albert? And he goes, so far. <laughs> it's like, that's a great answer. So they struck him with their hands. Now, um, I am a computer guy, so there's no calluses here, right? I mean, I'm just, just like pansy hands, right? These are Roman soldiers, Okay, I, I don't think they had keyboardist hands, right? Would would you agree with me there, Doug? These these are these are men, right? Um, these are all right. All right. How's that? <clears throat> Got in my throat now. All right. So so they struck him with their hands. So the word here, I'm not going to hit you hard. Okay, the word here is here, and it also means to box the ears. How many of you know what that is? You know what that is? It's, okay. So while they're verbally abusing him, doing, now, how many, have you ever had that done to you before? Anybody? Really? I'm going to talk to Joe. Oh, okay. All right. I was like, where the heck is Joe? <laughs> I'm going to smack him in the head. We're going to box his ears, right? Hey, does that feel good? No, it hurts, right? It actually makes you disoriented, right? Because it messes with your equilibrium. It's a real challenge. So, so he's disoriented. Now, remember two weeks ago in the lesson when he was in the garden and he was praying, what happened with his skin? Blood came out, right? Uh, hematidrosis. This, his uh, capillaries on the surface of his skin burst and it mixed in with his sweat. So he bled great drops of sweat. 
Well, one of the results of that is it makes your skin incredibly sensitive, incredibly sensitive. So any touch, a touch would have been excruciatingly painful, okay? So he's being slapped and his ears are being boxed. So this, while he's being taunted. So this is the stage, and this is in the imperfect tense. It happens continually out today, throughout today's entire lesson. Okay, so that's the setting. Thank you, Albert. Verse 4. Then Pilate went out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now, if you remember, Amy talked about last week that Pilate's already made this statement. He said, I, I can't find any, any fault with him. And she made this beautiful comment. She had people say, what's your translation say? And she said, doesn't matter how you put it. He was innocent. That was it. He's innocent. So this is the second time the governor comes out and said, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. The second time. Verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, to them, the crowd, Behold the man. And that's a true statement. Right? Pilate meant it to be mockery, and he was the man. I mean, there was never a man like this before, ever. Verse 6, therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So this is the third time Pilate says publicly, There's no fault in this guy at all. The Jews answered Pilate and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Anybody know where that law is? What law did Jesus, quote-unquote, break in the eyes of the Jews? He called himself God, right? They would consider that blasphemy. Um, it's Leviticus 24.16, which talks about stoning a man for blasphemy. Um, and Amy brought this up again last week, the, the idea that if the Jews had gotten their way and had been able to kill Jesus according to the law, the law itself would not have been fulfilled because Jesus had to be crucified, right? So it's the way that God shapes this story so that all things happen when all things are supposed to happen is unbelievable. So God uses the fact that the Jewish leaders manipulate the legal system of both the Jews and the Romans to bring about fulfilled prophecy. No Hollywood story has a plot this complex. None. You, you cannot involve... We're going to look at prophecies that, were, that occurred over a thousand years before these events that are fulfilled perfectly today. How do you write for that? You know, we think, we think somebody's a genius in the stock market if they can predict six months out. Right? Would you like to know six months out? Would anybody like to know? I'd like to know tomorrow. That'd be fine with me. Right? That'd be wonderful. But a thousand years? It's incredible. Now, <clears throat> look at the rest of verse 7. We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. I have a note in my notes here. Hideous theology. He did not make himself the Son of God. He always was the Son of God. Before time existed, because he created that too, he was the Son of God. Right? After time is over, if they just, God decides to stop time and just we exist outside of it, that's fine. He will be the Son of God, always and forever. That's who he is. Verse 8, therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Now why would, why would Pilate be afraid of this statement? 
my water. Why would Pilate be afraid of this statement? Pilate spent some time with him already. He knows this guy's different. One of the jobs of the, the governor was to oversee the taxation, was to manage the army, and to be the highest legal authority in that area. So Pilate had extensive judicial experience. Extensive. And if Pilate said you were innocent, you, you were innocent. That's, he, was the, he was the final authority here. But Pilate caved on this guy. He was the more afraid. What did the Jews bring up in verse 7? What concept? That Jesus was a, a god. Pilate was a superstitious man. Pilate was scared to death. What if he is a god? This is a problem for me. I can't be seen killing a god. This is a real, this is bad. This is very, very bad. So, verse 9, and he went again into the praetorium. This is Pilate's home. And he said to Jesus, <clears throat> where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, I have no clue why Jesus didn't answer him other than it would have been stunning to not answer the highest legal authority in the land, right? I mean, how much audacity do you have to stand before the man who holds your life in his hands and not respond? Who controls the power there? Jesus does. I mean, that's it's amazing. And then listen to what Jesus, what comes out of his mouth. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. <laughs> so he's powerful in his silence and he's powerful in his words. Unbelievable. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought, and this is in the imperfect tense, over and over and over again, to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go... You are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So they played the politics card. Now, um, I'm a little ahead of myself in my notes, but have you, ever, have you ever done anything at your job that you were not proud of, but you did it to save your own skin and your own position and your title and your authority and whatever comes along with that? Have you ever... We've done it this week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, we do stuff all the time because we caved to peer pressure. And Pilate knew that he, had a, he was the governor. He could ask for anything, and it was pretty much going to happen. He was in charge. And if enough Jews rose up and convinced Caesar that Pilate was no longer going to listen to the people and there was going to be an uprising, Pilate's out. And Caesar's going to put somebody in that can handle all this. So Pilate's saving his own skin here. Verse 13. While Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat. Now, the Greek for this judgment seat is the bema seat. And we, we've heard this term before, right? The bema seat is that seat that Jesus is going to sit in at, at the great white throne judgment and judge all men. So get this mental picture. So Pilate's sitting in this seat judging Jesus. And here's the blank. Jesus will sit on the Bema seat one day in heaven and judge Pilate. Literally, the tables will be turned. Mm. 
sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king, which is true. But they, the Jews, cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, now the, the, the priest system in, in the, uh, the Jewish uh, theological construct is such that there's a high priest. You're elected a high priest once a year. You serve for a full year. And each of the men that would serve two-week periods that year were called chief priests. So you had one high priest and a whole lot of chief priests. So these chief priests would oversee all the temple duties for a two, I think it's a two-week period, right? Okay. They'd oversee the temple duties for a two-week period. So these were the, um, the leaders of this theological uh, religion, right? These are the leaders. So all the chief priests were saying, crucify him. Now, what did the chief priests know very, very well? They knew the scriptures very well. They would, have been, they would have memorized the entire Old Testament. That's memorized, the whole thing. So God shows up, and they crucify him because it's unexpected. They expected a leader to lead them out of the Roman control. And what they get? They got a leader who was willing to die for the Romans and their sin as well. Totally unexpected. It's amazing to me. <clears throat> the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Imagine that. Imagine our church staff standing up on the stage this morning and saying, we have no authority but, we'll just say President Obama, because he's the, the chief authority in the land. How would that make you feel? Put politics aside, right? No snide remarks here. We should pray for our president. That's what we're commanded to do. Politics aside, how would that make you feel from a spiritual perspective? We have, we have woefully missed the boat here, right? Now, I want you to understand something. When you take God off the throne, anything else will do. So it works. Anything else will do because everything else is equal. God is infinitely above everything. Everything else is equal. Verse 16, Then Pilate delivered him to them, the Jewish leaders, to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And Jesus, verse 17, bearing his cross. Now, I don't know if you're writing your Bible, but you can, above that word his, you can write your name. Right? Because that was my cross that he took. Mine. Um, and he, I never met him. You know, I've, I haven't seen Jesus face to face. But he took my cross and he bore it that day. And he went out to a place called the place of a skull, Calvary, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him with two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And this was the writing, Jesus. Anybody know what Jesus means? <clears throat> Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Think about that. Pilate wrote, God is 
salvation above the cross. <laughs> Does nobody else think this is remarkable? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's incredible. Of Nazareth. You know what Nazareth means? Nazareth means one separated. What did Jesus come to do? To reconcile man who is separated from God. What was Jesus on the cross? He was separated from his father. These theological concepts are unbelievable. The king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's like nobody's going to miss this. Hebrew because the Jews would have read the Hebrew, right? And Greek because Greek was the language of the people, and Latin because Latin was the official language of Rome. So you have the official, the regular folks, and the Jews. Anybody that walked by would have understood this message. Anybody. Verse 21, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. Right? Because they had a problem with that. That's why they crucified him. That's, that's, that's what they got mad about. But write, He said, I am the king of the Jews. Now, both of these statements are true. Right? Both of these statements are true, but it makes a big difference which one you believe. It makes a big difference which one you believe. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And this, is, this to me is the confusing part of this story. Right? Because you've got Pilate, who is doing everything he can do to get the guy released. And he caves. He caves, he caves, he caves, he caves, he caves. And then he stands his ground on what he's written. You're like, well, pick something worthwhile to stand up about. Not what you wrote on a piece of wood. Does anybody else... I mean, just aggravates me. Anyway, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now, uh, if you know anything about Jewish uh, clothing, there are basically four parts to a Jew in this day and age clothes. There was a headpiece. There was an outer vest, a tunic, and then your, um, your girdle, basically. Would gird, your, gird up your loins, you know, kind of stuff. Um, so if you take off those four pieces off of a man, what is left? Yeah, pretty much your sandals. Okay? You're nothing. you got nothing left. So in all these pictures, these artwork where you see Jesus on the cross, he didn't have this white, clean little piece, right? He was naked, okay? When, when Paul later talks about uh, Christ became poor for us, everything was gone. Everything was gone. There was nothing left except the perfect sacrifice. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. This was something I had no clue about. Exodus 28 uh, tells us it's the high priest's garment was made out of one piece of, of clothing. It was seamless. There was no seam in the entire thing. And this little fact, this, one, this no seam in this garment, talks about Jesus is serving as our high priest right here on the cross because he is bridging the gap between God and man. Remember, because on, on uh, what's the day, the one day of the year, Yom Kippur? Yep, thank you. You've got to nod a little more vigorously so I know I'm on the right track here. The one day of the year where the high priest, they tie a rope around his foot, 
He goes into the Holy of Holies. He does his offering. It, it, there's bells around the bottom of his uh, clothing because if the bells stop moving, they pull the rope out. Because he went in with unconfessed sin or something didn't go right and, you know, the Spirit of the Lord killed him. This was a big, big deal. But the high priest would make a, a sacrifice, an atonement for the entire nation on that one day. And this one scene is pointing us back to the Old Testament to this work of the high priest because Jesus is making an atonement not for the whole nation, for the whole world, for all time. It's the greatest sacrifice that was ever made because it's the only perfect one. Verse 24, they said therefore among themselves, let us not, this is the soldiers, let us not tear it but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? And then the, the commentary from John that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is from Psalm 22.8, which was written over a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever walked the earth. So how do you predict a thousand years in advance that some guys are going to gamble over a very specific piece of clothing? You don't. It's the Spirit of God pouring himself into the words, into the writer, so that this can be fulfilled later. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. His mother's name was what? Come on, guys, this is a softball. His mother's name was? There we go. And his mother's sister? This was a bit strange for me. It's like, we have a Mary convention going on here, I think. And we're not done yet the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Yes, we do have a Mary convention here. There's three different Marys at the foot of the cross. I don't know. It's just the way it works. Now, I always thought that Magdalene was part of Mary's name. It's the, it's the town that she's from, Magdala. So it's just part of her, to reference where she was from, so that you wouldn't just say, now there's this cross stood Mary and Mary and Mary because that would be a bit more confusing than even this is. Yeah, <laughs> that was awful. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, right? John was a very, uh, John was a different kind of guy because he would, he just didn't talk about himself. He didn't brag about himself. So whenever you see this phrase in the book of John, the gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John's talking about himself because um, he didn't want to sound arrogant as he's going through. Um, the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, I've told you many times, several of you email me questions throughout the week, and one of the questions was, well, where was Joseph, right? Because shouldn't Joseph be taking care of Mary? That's his job. Well, theologians over the years have come to a very solid consensus that Joseph has probably died at this point. So there needs to be somebody to take care of Jesus' mother, Mary. Um, now, he had other women that followed him all throughout his ministry. Um, if you go back and read the Gospels, really, I, honestly, apart from Jesus, the women are the heroes in the Gospels because they are faithful, they are giving, they are supportive, they, they display incredible acts of worship and devotion. It's Guys, we, we look really bad in the Gospels because the disciples are a bunch of idiots. I mean, they just they were with him so long and they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. You know, and who's at the cross? Women. 
So thank you, lady. It means a lot to us because we're idiots, okay? <laughs> so from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So now if I'm, if I'm, on the, if I'm getting crucified, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about me. I'm not worried about you. I want you to help me get off this cross. Call everybody you know. See if we can overthrow these four guards that are guarding the, the cross right now. Maybe we can pull this thing off and you can get me down from here and I'll live. But he's not. He's taking care of business because it's about to be done. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop. Anybody remember what hyssop is? Hyssop's that plant that they dipped, the blood, dipped into the blood for the Passover, and they beat on the doorposts and on the sides. It's another very, very visible reminder that something big is going on here. They put it on the hyssop and they put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, does anybody have a different translation than sour wine? Vinegar. Yeah, it's basically vinegar. That's what this is. Now, has anybody ever seen somebody get knocked out? And they, they break little capsules under their noses. Anybody know what's in those? Ammonia. Really strong smelling things. What does that do to you? It wakes you up and it intensifies everything that you're feeling. So if you're given vinegar, it's going to wake you up. He's been on the cross somewhere around five hours at this point. And it's going to wake him up and intensify the things that are going on. Really? So why does he do this? He does this to make two final statements, one of which is recorded here in John. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, there are two Greek words that I think every God-fearing Baptist ought to know. Okay? One is agape, because that makes all the difference. That is the love that God has for all things. That is the love that we are supposed to interact with each other for. The second is to telestai. Here it is. You ready? Here's the blank. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. Tetelestai. You know what it means? It's the word that an artist would use when he looks at his, at his painting, at his creation, and he says, you know what? It's finished. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to change. It's a word that a builder uses when he looks at a house that he's just constructed and says, you know what? Everything was done exactly according to plan. Here are the keys, Sherlock family. Welcome home. It's, it's, it's finished. Um, it's the word that Jesus uses here. Jesus is saying, everything has been done. Now, at this moment, when Jesus says this, man has been reconciled to God. The sacrifice has been made. It is done. It is finished. Jesus said it was finished then. There's nothing that we still have to do now. It was done then. In the Old Testament, before it was done, they sacrificed the bulls and the goats looking forward to the future when it would be finished in the future. So all the Old Testament saints that are in heaven watching this event, I, I can only imagine go, oh, now it's finished. Because that's what we looked forward to for 4,000 years. 
we look forward to this. And for the last 2,000 years, we have been looking back to this event where everything was finished to Telestai. It is finished. It is done. At this point, the perfect once-for-all sacrifice had been made and love had won the day. Now, love wins against sin at the cross. Love wins at death next week in the resurrection. Now, there are varying degrees which you can defeat an enemy, right? Would you agree from a military perspective? Um, you can make an enemy stop, and you can make them uh, acquiesce and say that you have won. But to defeat all of the ramifications of that enemy are a whole other level of defeat, a whole other level of victory, right? Because Jesus has defeated sin here, but death is still ruling. Next week, we're going to take care of death. We're going to take care of the results of the sin. So Jesus didn't just beat sin, he beat the results of the sin, which is a comprehensive, um, how could we say it, shock and awe, right? It, done, finished, completely finished. And so what does he do when he's finished? He does what you're supposed to do when you're finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, and he died. Verse 31 Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Um, so you know how you die on a cross, right? You die from suffocation, right? which seems kind of strange, but you're, you're crucified. There was a little, um, the Romans perfected this process. They put a little uh, stand at the bottom of it where you could push up to breathe because you, you would sink down and the, the pressure from your arms would crush in and cave in on your lungs, so you'd have to lift yourself up to breathe. The only problem with that is you're lifting yourself up on nails in your hands. This is a real problem, okay? They put the nails through here. Not through here. This would have ripped very quickly through here. The Roman hand extended down here. So when the Bible says hand, everything's still fine. Because if we mean wrist, we're a little more descriptive than the Romans are. So you could support your body weight with that. So he would lift up. So after several hours, because they could not leave these guys on the cross, cross says, after sun went down, right? Because the next day was a Sabbath, and you don't get to have people hanging out on the Sabbath. Uh, what you would typically do for a crucifixion, they would leave them on the cross for several days, and let them sit there. Now, what's going to happen? They're going to decompose. Vultures are going to come, right. The goal was to watch wild animals eat them off. And it's just, you know, it's... Now, remember, the two guys on either side of Jesus, what did they do? What were they? No, they were not thieves. They were... There's a different word. Robbers. There's a difference. Thieves is somebody who will steal. A robber is somebody who will take it off of you. They're bold. A whole other level of boldness. Now, think about this. You got crucified in Rome for a robbery. Romans didn't mess around. <laughs> okay? This is like a speeding ticket for us. I mean, this is... This... Robbery. Really? So if I steal your wallet, Albert, I get to go to the cross. That's the Roman legal system. Well, that's one way to keep law and order, Right? Tight grip, tight, tight, tight grip. So the thieves on either side, they're still alive. 
So the Romans come with a thing called a crugiaform. It just sounds awful, doesn't it? It's a heavy mallet, and they break their legs. Now, when you break your legs, now, you, dude's been on the cross five hours, six hours at this point, right? Suffering immensely. Every breath, pushing up to breathe, and he drops back down. So when they have broken my legs, what can I no longer do? I can't push up. So in a matter of seconds, I suffocate to death. All right? Jesus had already died. And people ask all the time, well, what did Jesus die of? What did Jesus die of? What physically caused him to die? Because he didn't die of suffocation. Because when the Roman soldier pierced his side, blood and water came out. And there's only one medical scenario where blood and water come out. And that's from an exploded heart. His heart literally broke. He died of a broken heart. Um, it's incredible to me, you know, the, the love that he had for us. It's un. Believable. And then John goes on to talk about in verse 36 that the scripture is not going to be broken. The, the scripture is going to be fulfilled because not one of his bones shall be broken. And that was written in Exodus 12. Okay? So you're talking 15, 1800 years before. I mean, hundreds and hundreds. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And then we have two guys that are too late. Verses 38 through 42. Two guys that show up Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And both these guys are members of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was what? The religious ruling body for the Jews, right? So who would have made the decision to bring Jesus to Pilate? The Sanhedrin. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were part of that. Now we don't know how they voted. We don't know what they said. All we know is that they were a part of that. And when did they show up? After. Now, what they did was a very bold thing. They went to Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Pilate gave it to him. Nicodemus shows up with 100 pounds of spices and ointment to put on the body of Jesus Christ, which I, I don't know what 100 pounds of perfume costs, but it, it can't be cheap, right? I mean, this is a massive amount of money. Um, a pound in their day was 12 ounces in our... Oh, okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, this, this could have been significant, significant dollars. But my point is that they showed up late, right? They showed up late. But you know what? They did show up. And I'll tip my hat to them for that. So, what's the point here? Well, number one, God may not do what you expect him to do. And everybody said, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Number two, God will still accomplish his plan, even if it takes 4,000 years. It took 4,000 years from the time Adam sinned to the time Jesus died on the cross. That's patience right there. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And Jesus' death reconciled man to God. We were reconciled to God. God didn't reconcile himself to man. We were reconciled to God. So what do I do with that? One, don't hold God accountable for things he didn't promise. Because sometimes we expect God to do things a certain way, and he didn't tell us he's going to do it a certain way. He just said he's going to do it. It's a big difference. Two, willingly allow God to use you to accomplish his plan. And three, share God's good news of love with others to make a difference in their lives. Because this story is where everything in the Bible turns. 
because now it goes from we're waiting for the Messiah to did you hear what, what Jesus did? Did you hear what Jesus did? Because he changed everything. Because we don't have to kill the bulls and the goats anymore. And all the bulls and the goats went, right? It's fantastic. It's just great news, even for them. Even the animals are happy about this, right? And uh, thanks for coming this morning.